0: Let's uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 11 as we continue in our study through the book of Hebrews. I'm going to do what Brother Nathan did last week. I'd like to start with the first three verses there. So we'll start up at the top of chapter 11, starting at verse 1. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendations. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Let's jump down to verse 20. It says, By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob when dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. Father, we ask that this morning, as we approach a word, that you would be with us because we are a needy people. Um, at our best, we are weak, Lord. To understand truth. We need your spirit, Lord, to open our hearts and our minds to comprehend and to grasp, and we also need the power of your spirit, Lord, to live by these things, that they will infiltrate the way that we think and the way that we conduct ourselves, the words that come out of our mouths, the hope that dwells within us. So we depend on you this morning, and we ask that you would bless us as we study your word, that you would open it to us and bless it in Christ's name. So, 2020 has definitely been an interesting year. It's been very challenging. Challenging in terms of societal crises that are going on around us. First, you have the rising of this COVID pandemic. It's all a buzz, it's all everybody ever talks about. The disease itself has caused a lot of devastation. There's been a lot of sickness, there's been a lot of death caused. There's a lot of uncertainty, but we look at the consequences of this virus upon our society, shutdowns, loss of freedoms, loss of jobs, fears all around because a lack of solid facts that we can trust in, that we can believe. All of life has really been turned upside down because of this virus, and few things in life around our country and around our world have been unaffected by this virus. And there's politicians that like to use these circumstances in, in order to push their own popularity or their own agendas, their own plans. Certainly, there are many who are trying to utilize this sort of crisis for financial gains, too, on many different levels. Everyone's pointing a finger at each other in disagreement and blame. And it causes a tremendous amount of disunity in our culture. So unfortunately, there have been some very unique effects upon the church itself, the church at large, the universal church. So besides the obvious fact that it has prevented many from physically meeting together in their congregations to fellowship and to worship together... Besides that, there's the governmental attempts to try to shut down churches around the country and keep believers from meeting. Some of the worst consequences within the church are our own disunity. That's unfortunate. So folks point the finger, claiming that there's either a lack of faith in somebody or there's a lack of love. Some are wearing masks and keeping distance, And others say, well, that's a lack of faith. Others might say your masks and your distancing, if you're not doing that, is a lack of love. Either way, critical spirits and insensitivity for each other is sinful. It's sinful. And we should be striving to react to each other in a patient love. We all need to be more careful about our actions and our words. That we would be considering each other as more important than ourselves. And that includes the one standing in front of you. We all need to improve in that. But the point is that this pandemic has had negative effects on our nation, our society, and our churches. That the virus is not the only impact our nation has felt this year, is it? There's been a huge political battle going on, battles that will determine our future as a nation, as a people, as a society, a large portion of our country literally wants to chuck everything and turn to a more socialist-style government. The other side is fighting to preserve a constitutional form. And recently we've seen riots in the street, the destroying of homes and businesses, people's lives that they've built for years that are just being ruined and destroyed. And we've seen people being killed, both innocent and guilty people being killed. And their push is to get rid of law enforcement to pack the courts, to get rid of incarceration for criminals, and on and on. There's just a lot of political turmoil, even crisis today in our, in our country. What a zoo. What a zoo. Politics and pandemics. That's, that's the words of the year. So my wife got a message from somebody recently on Facebook. It was a bunch of porta-potties all on fire, and they're all melting, and it says, if 2020 were a scented candle... So I, I've lived for 50 years, guys, and I've seen national difficulties. But this is a period like I've never seen in my life. And people are uneasy and concerned. I've had people come to me and express fear and anxiety. I've had people come to me and express anger and frustration. People are off kilter. People are upset, are scared, are nervous. And I'm talking believers and unbelievers alike are coming to me with these things. I'm going to say something to you right now that might seem really strange, but for us as believers, these times that we are facing right now are really a gracious act of God for us. They're a gracious gift of God to us. And how could that be? Paul, you sound like a a lunatic. It's a gracious gift of God because it reminds us where our faith and our hope lies, We are being reminded that our hope is in Christ, not in our earthly circumstances. If these things were not occurring, we'd be more focused on ourselves and this world, merrily moving along through our days, accomplishing our earthly tasks, and settled on our own personal goals. Life would be ho-hum. When God throws a wrench into the works, it reminds us that Christ, guys, is everything to us. Everything. Christ is everything. In recent weeks, we've looked at the life of Abraham and Sarah, who also struggled at times to understand their earthly circumstances. Couldn't, couldn't understand why, why, are, why are we not pregnant yet. God said we were going to have a child. This week, we're going to look at Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. To the Jewish people, they, they were extremely familiar with these guys. And to the Jewish people, these guys were great heroes. They were heroes. These are the patriarchs. These are the progenitors of the people of promise. So next to the observance of laws and regulations amongst the Jews, in importance, was this lineage of the patriarchs. That was so crucial to them. The Jews truly believed that being a descendant of Abraham... And observing religious regulations alone made them acceptable to God. And they were shoe in to go to heaven. It's a given. I'm going to heaven. I'm, a, I'm of Abraham, and I observe the laws. The, the Jews truly believe that being descended from Abraham was the key. But this chapter is not written to praise the people of old for their personal accomplishments or to acknowledge some sort of intrinsic goodness that they possessed because of lineage. It's not the purpose of the writer. On the contrary, it is to exemplify the faith that they possessed that was of divine origin and which led them to act in faith. Righteousness doesn't come from works. You can't work yourself into being righteous. It comes through faith alone. Hebrews, um, the, the readers... Uh, they were initially, the ones that were being addressed were Jewish people, and they were being tempted to leave behind trust in Christ alone and return back to this system, back, back to works, back to observances. And the author is telling them that faith has always been the issue and that Christ has always been the final object of that faith. And they would be foolishness to walk away from that and go backwards, go back to something that is useless. Again, these three men, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, are not being recognized for their personal successes. They were not made recipients of the promises of God because they were exceptional in their character. God didn't pick them out and say, boy, those guys are really wonderful. I'm going to promise some things to them. So based on these three verses this morning, we're going to look at three aspects of faith that we see in these men. The first is is that faith is not reserved for the perfect. It's not reserved for the perfect. These men, particularly Isaac and Jacob, had at best a lackluster life of faith. There were moments when they trusted God and obeyed God. At times they worshipped, they set up altars, and they recognized God. But while these women were being recognized for the faith, much of their life was lived contrary to that faith, many of the things that they did. And this is not meant to endorse sinful lives or sinful choices, to say it doesn't matter. Believers honor God by faith with, uh, with the, when the Spirit triumphs over the flesh. That's when we honor God. When the eagerness is there to submit to God in all things. This is faith exercising itself and growing in a process. Faith without works is dead. That's what James instructs us. If there's no action according to that faith, then it's not faith at all. But faith is also not generated through a life of submission to commands. You can't create it through your religious actions. Righteousness is not gained through works. It's not gained, uh, it is gained through faith that works. Does that make sense? I'm going to repeat that. Righteousness is not gained through works. It is gained through faith that does work. In many episodes in the life of these men, left question, left Question. Let's take a brief look at Isaac's life to start out with. Turn to Genesis 26. Let's look together in Genesis 26. It's interesting to note that the vast majority of Genesis is the patriarchs. Chapters 12 through 50 in Genesis is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That's a huge portion of Genesis. But there's only three chapters on Isaac. Three chapters that tell us about his rather unspectacular life. So Genesis 26, starting at verse 1, it says, Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and will establish the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And he did that by faith. So God reminds Isaac of the promises he made to Abraham and his descendants. And I am certain, absolutely certain, that Isaac was well familiar with these promises. These promises of God, Isaac was not learning them for the first time. But God is restoring the promises and aiming them at Isaac and his descendants. So when there is a famine condition... It talks about a famine here. It was wiser to go to a place where there was a lot more resources, provisions to, to uh, sustain life, things that are available. So Gerar is down at the southernmost part of the land of Canaan at the time. It was a Philistine town, and it was right on the border of Egypt. So apparently Isaac was heading south. He was heading towards Egypt, and God stops him at the southernmost part, and he says, go no further. You stay in this land. But he tells Isaac, sojourn in the land of Canaan, be a stranger, stay here, be a stranger, remain in the land, but not part of the people, be a stranger, be a sojourner. So it says in verse 6, Isaac settled in Gerar, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, oh, she's my sister, for he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Does that seem familiar at all? Seems very familiar, doesn't it? Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> so he's doing the exact same thing Abraham did. Believe it or not, Abraham did this twice. The second time he did it was in the same town of Gerar. It's it, just exactly like his father did exactly the same thing. Isaac says to his wife, he says, Okay, listen, we're going to go settle here, but I need you to say you're my sister so I don't get hurt. Isn't that lovely? No concern for his wife's well-being, mind you, just himself. Think about that. I'm in between you and somebody that might want to take advantage of you. So, you know, so I don't get hurt. I'm going to get out of the way. What on earth? Verse 8, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looks out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So the word laughing has a sense of a flirtation, including a physical flirtation. Uh, The word can be uh, be translated conjugal caresses or to make sport of another. The NSB says Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebecca. The King James Version, I like this one, says he was sporting with Rebecca, his wife. So in verse 9, Abimelech says to Isaac, listen, pal. A guy doesn't sport with his sister, okay? Th- this is not your sister. He says, he called Isaac and said, behold, she's your wife. Now, now then, how could you say she's your sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech says, what has this you've done to us? One of our people might have easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought great guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife will surely be put to death. So God provides through this protection for Isaac, but that is not to exemplify the means in which it happened. What he did, he was fully culpable for his sin here. Instead of acting in faith, instead of trusting God, God said to stay there. Do you think God will take care of you? He already said he will bless you. He just said it. Isaac acted foolishly, risking his wife and the people around him for his own benefit. So let's step back to chapter 25 for a second. Turn back to chapter 25, starting at verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? This is a difficult phrase, and and there was a lot of scholars that disagreed on what this meant, what she is saying here. But in essence, if you you boil it down to its brass tacks here, what's happening is that there is a huge thrashing going on inside her stomach. Okay, this is no small thing. This is no normal movement of a baby in the womb. Her stomach is thrashing and banging around, and she's, what is going on? This is tumultuous. What is happening? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. And it says, When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when he bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of the game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. There's a lot of things to digest in this little short passage. First, notice that God has already determined the blessing here. It's already been fixed. It's not negotiable. God's determined it. Paul speaks of this in Romans 9. He says, Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall you say then? Is is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So notice there that God loves Jacob and rejects Esau, but Isaac loves Esau instead. There's a problem here. So what what does it say the primary reason was that Isaac loved Esau? This is interesting. It says because he ate of his game. There was a personal benefit. He liked the food that he brought to him. He liked the fact that he was a hunter. He liked the way he was, but he really liked the benefit that he got from Esau because he brought him game all the time to eat, and he liked that. Isaac seems rather fickle, rather fleshly. Things... things, uh, you know, he, he lies about his wife for himself. He primarily loves Esau because he brings him tasty game to eat. It's all about him. Let's look at one more passage regarding Isaac. Let's go to chapter 27, verses 1 through 4. It says, When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt for game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Do you think... Isaac was unaware of God's plan that the older should serve the younger. Do you think he was unaware of that? Do you think his wife kept that a secret? Do you think if during this whole process God revealed something magnificent like that to Rebekah and she loved Jacob, that she would not have said something to Isaac about this? Isaac had to be aware. I, I don't think he was unaware. So traditional norms of blessings involved the eldest receiving the double portion and receiving the, the preeminence. And that might have been influential on in Isaac's decisions, what he was doing here. But he was also pushing his own choice in the matter. This is what he wanted. He preferred this. God preferred Jacob, Isaac preferred Esau. And Isaac is also using the situation to get some tasty food out of the deal. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. Talk about your dysfunctional families. And Jacob was not any better than his father. Jacob was no better. We won't spend nearly as much time looking at Jacob simply because his life is, there's so much about him in the scriptures, and there's so much detail. There's too much to talk about. But Jacob, the best word you could use for him was a shyster. The guy was a total shyster. Alistair Begg used these words when he talked about Jacob. He said he is twist, a twisted and conniving rascal. <laughs> Sounds like his words. But he's like the most unscrupulous lawyer crossed with the most unscrupulous used car dealer. I mean, this guy, he's a manipulator. He sees what he wants, and he does whatever he takes to get it. So, you'll likely know the story. I mean, you all know all about the story. But he manipulates his brother over a bowl of stew in order to take his birthright. And then he works with his mother to manipulate his father into fulfilling his claim to it. He lies to his father. Oh, yeah, it's me, Dad, it's Esau. Your firstborn. He deceives him. He covers his arms with furs. He takes food that his mother prepared and pretends that it's his own. He participates in one of the most notorious schemes in all the scriptures. Ironically, he is later scammed by Laban, tricked into taking Laban's older daughter as his wife when he really wanted the younger one and had made an agreement for her. And this leads to Laban and Jacob both trying to manipulate each other as each tries to get the bigger flocks. So Isaac and Jacob both had issues. These guys weren't exemplary. They they are not recognized in Hebrews 11 because they are perfect individuals without issues, that they were without sin, that they were without blemish. They they obeyed God perfectly. They, They did all the works of righteousness. If righteousness were weighed by merit, these men would be utter failures. And I honestly struggled with the phrase, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Guys, when I first saw this, as I started approaching this passage, I struggled with this for weeks. I I finally brought it to my wife and we talked about it, and I had a hard time figuring out an answer for this. He invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau by faith after that entire fiasco? How can that be considered a representation of faith? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, how could Isaac's blatant disregard for God's decision be considered an act of faith? I don't understand. But there was an aha moment for me in Genesis 27, verse 33. Esau comes in, and the deception of his brother is figured out, it's uncovered. And Isaac says this, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it? All before you came. And I have blessed him, yes, and he shall Be blessed. He says down in verse 37, Behold, I have made him, that is Jacob, Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? He's talking to Esau. I truly believe that Isaac in that moment realized that God had accomplished his will. The older will serve the younger. I think he came to the realization that this was God's will and it will be accomplished and he believed it by faith this is the right thing. He realized that this God who had made promises was demonstrating his power to accomplish everything he sets out to do and Isaac, in faith, blessed both the boys and accepted God's outcome. I truly believe that was what was happening here. Isaac is seeing God's infinite wisdom, his overpowering sovereignty, and his astonishing mercy. And this is solidified at the beginning of the next chapter. Look at the start of chapter 28, starting in verse 1. It says, then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him And he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padam Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus, Isaac sent Jacob away. It's an amazing blessing. In faith, Isaac is acknowledging God's choice and he sends Jacob to Laban's house to protect the lineage of the promise. And the blessings Jacob, uh, and, he, and he blesses Jacob again, and he's calling for him to flourish according to God's promises. He's calling for that upon Jacob's life, which leads to a second point. Faith rests in a future inheritance even in the face of death. We see that with each of these three individuals. Hebrews 11.1 1, that we just read, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is assurance and conviction. And the reason faith is so significant and powerful is not because of the one who lives by faith. Faith is not powerful because we just, "Mm, we really believe it. Okay? But because of the object of our faith, guys, what we place our faith in, if you have a lake that's covered with a half an inch of ice, I tell you, I do not care how much faith. You might have mountains of faith that that ice is going to hold you, but I guarantee you walk on it, it's going to have very bad consequences. But if that lake has two feet of ice on the surface, I don't care how small your faith is, you walk out on that ice, it's going to hold you. Why? Why? because it's not the amount of faith that we have, it's the object that we place our faith in. The righteous are full of assurance and conviction because God is the one who we completely trust and submit ourselves to. He cannot, will not fail, and he does everything that he intends without fail. God made a promise to Abraham, though, and Abraham absolutely believed God would do all that he promised. And it was accredited to him as righteousness. He believed God. But Abraham never saw it in his lifetime. All these things God promised. Abraham was promised a land. The only land Abraham ever owned was a grave. That was it. God promised that he would possess the land, that... But he was dying in the land as an alien. He never got it. He was promised a great nation. He never saw a great nation. He never saw a great number of descendants. God promised Abraham that he would be a source of blessing to the entire world. He never saw that happen. He never saw any of these things. But Abraham still believed God completely. And he blessed Isaac, passing the promises and the hope unto his son Isaac. But Isaac never saw any of this in his lifetime. Isaac still believed God and passed the blessing unto his son Jacob. And as we just saw, Isaac witnessed the will of God being accomplished as the younger was chosen. But Jacob never saw the blessings either. Still, Jacob completely believed God and he passed on the blessings. He believed God. Hebrews 11 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. He got up off his deathbed, guys. He's on his last leg. He's, you know, he's at the end. He gets off of his deathbed and he worshiped God while leaning on his staff. What, what's going on here? This is a staff of his sojourning. He limped around the land with this staff in his sojourning. His life has been long and hard, and he had never seen the fulfillment of any of these promises, nothing. And he had thought that his beloved son was dead, his cherished son, his greatest love out of his, out of his children. He thought he was dead, and now he's able not only to bless him, but to bless his son's sons. God is so faithful. He will maintain the promises, and he will fulfill all that he promised. There was much for him to rejoice in. Jacob believed God, but guess what? Joseph never saw the promises fulfilled either. Instead, he passed on the promises. Listen to what God told Abraham earlier in Genesis 15. He he told Abraham this. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And Joseph knew this, he was aware of this. And so at the very end of the book of Genesis, Joseph says to his brothers, He says, I'm about to die but god will visit you and bring you up out of this land that you that he swore to abraham to isaac and jacob then joseph made the sons of israel swear saying god will surely visit you and will carry you uh, and you shall carry up my bones from here so he understood the promise of god that these guys would be captive there but he would remove them later and he believed that so so Serious was his belief in that, that he said, you've got to guarantee me that you carry my bones up out of here when you go because it's going to happen. But guess what? None of those guys saw the fulfillment of anything either. Isn't that interesting? In fact, none of the people listed in Hebrews chapter 11 ever saw the promises fulfilled. They never saw the full fulfillment of everything that God was promising. But every one of them looked forward in faith totally believing that God would do all that he declared. They believed that God would do all of this. They all died before any true fulfillment of all these things came to pass. Before the promised Messiah even, through whom the world would be blessed. Before the coming kingdom. They all died without receiving any promise being realized to its fullest. And though their lives were marked by weakness, they all died in faith. They died in faith, believing that God would do all that he promised. And they believed it with utter certainty. No doubt. Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking about the land from which they came, had gone out, this promised land that God said they would get, they'd been thinking about that, they would have an opportunity to return there. But it, as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be their God, for He has prepared for them a city. People, you are sojourning in a fallen world. You are here for a time walking around in fallen flesh amongst fallen people. Pain, loss, difficulty, disappointment, they're present in common. Your failures, they're gonna be a reality. You can't avoid it. Social chaos, moral chaos, political chaos, pandemics. They're all going to exist until God fulfills all that he has promised. And we fully believe that he will do all that he says he will do. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls, as it says at the end of chapter 10. The righteous one shall live by faith. In fact, everything they hoped for back then has now been realized in the person of Christ. All these things. though uh, uh, Verses 39 through 40. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They looked forward to a day of of salvation. They were looking forward to that, to a fulfillment of everything God is declaring. We look back with joy because the day has come. And now, together, we all look forward to our final salvation from this corrupt and fallen creation, when God will fulfill all things in Christ and will finally make perfect those that are his, and Christ will finally be ours forever. All these things are going to be fulfilled exactly as God has promised. They're going to happen. Can someone say amen? Somebody? (laughs) We need to say that. But we need to make an important point about faith in the lives of men, a final point. Faith leaves a legacy. Every one of these men left a legacy. Every one of them. A person who lives by faith will display a concern for the spiritual well-being of their children. They're going to leave a legacy. All of these men were concerned that at the end of their lives, their children and their children's children understood the faithfulness of God. They had never experienced the fulfillment of the promises. They never saw it. But they pointed forward to the future fulfillment with total anticipation. Isaac invoked blessings on the future of his children. Jacob rose from his deathbed and leaned on his staff to bless his children, and he worshiped God. Joseph looked to the future in full faith that God would accomplish everything, and he made the family promise to take his bones to the promised land. So I ask you, what kind of legacy are you leaving for your children? What kind of legacy are you leaving? Are you simply leaving a legacy that hard work, can acquire earthly goods? Is that that your legacy? Are you simply leaving a legacy of trying to be religious, attending church, and trying to just be a good person? Is that your legacy? These things are not evil in in and of themselves, but are we leaving a legacy of complete and undying faith in God? Do you manifest a complete trust In God and an overflowing love for Jesus Christ. Is that what they read in your life? Is that what they're seeing? What kind of blessings are you praying upon your children by faith? What are you praying for your children? Do you even pray for your children? The flesh perishes, guys, the spirit does not die, it remains. There are eternal consequences. Are you falling short by simply caring for their physical and material needs? Or, just like these men, are you blessing your children in regard to their future? Is that your greatest concern? So life of faith lived out in front of your children is far more impactful than any lesson or benefit you can leave them. Your love for Jesus Christ and your undying faith in him that absorbs your entire life and is obvious. So we live in a fallen world of turmoil. All the events of 2020 that we just discussed have been horrible. Things have not improved since the time of the patriarchs. The world's not getting better, guys. <laughs> Sorry to say, law of entropy. In fact, we're guaranteed that things are going to decline as, as history goes forward, it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. But our faith should not be in politics and vaccines right now. It should be fixed in Christ. It should be fixed in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. We're children of the same faith as Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's us. We should be looking forward to what is beyond this temporal world, to the fulfillment of all that has been promised to us. As it says in chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is currently seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, Father, we ask you, we plead with you, that you would help us to be those who do not shrink back, that walk with assurance, whose life is marked with this overflowing love for Jesus Christ and an undying trust in you, that you will fulfill all that you have determined. And no matter what we endure in this life, it is not worthy of us being upset because our full assurance is in you. Lord, this life is short, but our hope is for a glorious future. We thank you, Father, that we join together in unity. You've given us to each other as a family to love and enjoy you, but also to love and enjoy each other for eternity. Pray, Lord, that you help us to put our faith and our hope and our trust in what you had promised. Help us, Lord, to walk in faith, trusting you. Help us to pass that on to our children manifesting lives of faith. And we pray your blessings on these things in Christ's name. Amen.